Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles now to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at chapter 15 of Mark's Gospel. We're going to start in verse 16 this morning as we read, and we're going to work all the way to verse 32. So when you find that, let's stand up together as the believing body of Christ, recognizing that God's Word is holy. It is, in fact, inerrant, authoritative in all that it teaches, inspired, and it is infallible when we listen to the Word of God as though God is personally speaking to us. Mark fifteen sixteen. listen now to the Word of God. The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? May be seated. Sometimes when a when a terrible or a tragic event takes place, people experience something a little bit unusual. They experience what is sometimes called the slow-mo effect, which is where uh, in the moment of the tragedy itself, your brain has this strange ability to slow down all of the details 
that are happening around you so that you can take in a far more information into your brain than you might ordinarily be able to process. And when people experience this, it, it manifests in different ways. Some people have described the experience of having their whole life pass before their, their eyes, they say. And you've probably heard people say that they've experienced a strange phenomenon. Maybe they're in a tragic a car accident, or maybe they happen to see a bank robbery happen, or uh, maybe they're involved in a flood or some other kind of uh, dangerous, near-tragic, um, would-be life-ending scenario. And so sometimes people describe this, this, their life flashing before their eyes. It's actually, there's a name for that. It's called an LRE, a life reflection event. But other people, they experience time just slowing down, and that's the slow-mo effect. It's a strange thing that happens um, where you might see every single detail. You might remember every piece of glass that's flying across your field of vision from the crash, or you might notice the leaves on the trees or the look on somebody's face. And what's happening in this moment is the memory, most of the time, it works somewhat like a sieve where you're only really remembering the things that your mind deems to be important. And so a lot of what happens in your daily life, you don't even notice it. It just kind of goes right by you and you'll forget it for the rest of your life. But in certain tragic moments, uh, different sections of your brain are firing and other sections of your brain go inert so that you have this heightened sense of your awareness. And that often results in witnesses being able to recall very minute and yet important details in these sorts of events. And so when we're reading the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Christ, it's interesting that some of the details that we see in these texts are the kind of details that would be picked up in these moments by the very eyewitnesses as they're noticing these important, colorful, vivid details of the events of the crucifixion of Christ. Now, we know from the other Gospels that most of the disciples fled when Jesus was actually being crucified, uh, but John's Gospel tells us that there were a few who stayed. Uh, John himself was one of those who was near the cross as Jesus was being crucified, as was Jesus' mother Mary, as was Mary Magdalene, and as was Mary, the mother of Clopas, all part of this larger circle of Jesus' disciples. And so that's probably where we get these vast details, these very precise details about the crucifixion of Christ is through these heightened memory recollections of those who were actually there while Jesus was being crucified. And so today we've come to now in the Gospel of Mark, the actual crucifixion of Christ. Of course, we've been working towards this now for months. And Mark's Gospel, if you remember way back to the beginning, Mark's Gospel has been racing towards the cross all along. It's the briefest, fastest of the four Gospels you might even remember that one of Mark's favorite words is the word euthus in the Greek, which means immediately. Uh, Jesus is doing everything immediately throughout Mark's gospel. Mark is on a high pace to get to the cross. And finally, after all these weeks of study, we've come now to the very event that Mark is pleased to show us in its full array of detail. Now, obviously, as Christian believers, speaking to you as Christians this morning, the cross is for us one of the most 
important events of all of history. In fact, it'd be hard to say there's even a more important event in all of history than the cross, but to make a short list, we've got creation, the fall, the cross, the resurrection, Pentecost, and one that hasn't happened yet, the return of Christ is still to come. That would be like the barest handful of the most important events in all of redemption history. But who could argue that the cross is even on the lower portion of that list? I'm not going to make a ranking of them because they're all important. But who could argue as a believer that this isn't one of the most important events of all of history? That's why we're here, right? That's why we're saved. That's why we, we call ourselves Christians. That's, this is why we preach the cross and the gospel week after week. And so this morning, what I'd like to do um, is bring you into, as much as I'm able to do this, to bring you into that slow-mo effect in which together as a congregation, we're going to watch this tragic event of the cross of Christ. And I want you, as though you were there, to have your brain on heightened alert taking in all of the relevant data as though you were there watching this and letting go anything that would be irrelevant to the very central core message of the Christian faith, which is the crucifixion of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I want to present this morning five details from the text that I hope your brain would, would, would absorb as we treasure this event of the cross together. Five details that might be overlooked, but we're not going to let that happen this morning. We're going to make sure that we see them as best as we're able to do. So I'm going to give you five, and there's, there's plenty more in this text that I could have selected, but I'm going to give you five, and I'm going to label them A through E if you want to take notes. And then towards the end of the message, we're going to apply this and say, why does this even matter? Who, what, what's the deal? Who, who cares? So what? Christ was crucified. What is that to me? We'll, we'll try to answer that question towards the end of the sermon. So five Five details as we treasure the cross together. Here's A. Let's look for a moment at the purple cloak that they put on Christ. This is in verse 17, the purple cloak. Now, Bibles are open now. We're doing work in the Scriptures. Look at verse 17. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. Now, why would, why would that detail be relevant, this purple cloak? Well, first of all, we need to understand a little background here that purple cloth is the most expensive cloth in the ancient world. It truly is. Uh, the reason that purple cloaks or cloths were the most expensive had to do with the dye that was necessary in order to take your average linen or cotton cloth and, and dye it purple. There's really only two ways to do that in the ancient world. Uh, today, we've got all kinds of dyes, a natural and synthetic. But in the ancient world, really two ways to do that. There was a certain root of a plant that you could squeeze it and it would emit for you a very few drops of purple dye. And so you needed a ton of this particular root in order to get just a very few drops of the purple dye. The other way that they did this, believe it or not, especially in and around the sea, was there was a mollusk. You know what a mollusk is, right? A little sea creature. That you could squeeze that little guy and you could get, again, a few, just a few drops of purple dye. And so either way you did it, it took a lot of dye to dye a garment purple. And so purple garments were really only worn by the rich and the elites. They were the ones who had the money to pay for a garment that would be stained in this sort of an expensive process, right? So we see purple dye coming up in a couple of places. One of them is in the book of Acts, chapter 16. 
Uh, we meet a, mo- a woman who Paul meets in Acts chapter 16. Her name is Lydia. And the scriptures tell us that she is a traitor of purple cloth. And so she is uh, essentially the ancient world's version of kind of a high fashion trader. And apparently uh, this, this woman is, is moving around from city to city as she's selling her purple wares. The other place we see somebody wearing purple is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember that story? And so again, now here we see a purple cloak. Now what's happening here in this moment as they strip off Jesus' normal clothing and they put on this purple cloak here? Well, they're doing this for a very particular reason to heighten the mockery that they are putting him through, right? They're not honoring him with this, are they? No, they're not honoring him with this. They're trying to degrade him. We noticed towards the end of last week's passage that they already began to beat him up in verse 15 of chapter 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So this putting on of this purple robe is meant to degrade him, to mock him. This is psychological warfare to break down this man that they are now debasing and humiliating. You you kind of wonder where they got the purple cloak from, right? Like whose purple cloak was it? They didn't just go to Walmart and get one that day. No, a couple possibilities. Well, they're, they're around Pilate's palace, aren't they? So, so maybe there's a connection there. Maybe it was one of the higher-ranking soldiers, the centurion himself. We don't really know. All that we know is that in order to mock him, to degrade him, to debase him, they put on this purple cloak. And then what do they do after that? They strip it right back off of him. They put it on him. They mock him. They take it back off. And later on in the passage, what do we read? But that they take his own garments and they gamble them away as they're putting him on the cross and actually crucifying him. So you need to understand that despite all of the artwork that you've probably seen from the Baroque period of Jesus being crucified in a, in a nicely folded and draped robe, that most of the time they actually crucified people naked for the utmost humiliation. That's what they did. And so they're gambling for his garments down at the foot of the cross as he is completely debased. Now, isn't this an interesting phenomenon that our Savior would be crucified naked, given the fact that when we go back to the fall in the Garden of Eden, what do we see there? But that Adam and Eve were created naked, and yet it was their own invention to create clothes. You remember this, Genesis chapter 3? What do they do when they're found guilty before God? After they've sinned, what do they do? They begin to fabricate their own clothing out of fig leaves. You remember this? Why are they doing this? Because they're filled with shame. Adam and Eve made these fig leaves garments to cover up their own guilt, but they couldn't do that. And so towards the end of Genesis chapter 3, we read this interesting verse that God made skins for them to cover them. And so here we have in Genesis chapter 3 this foreshadowing of the fact that God is going to cover his people with the right sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, that is finally going to be able to take away their shame and their guilt. You see? So God has to provide the righteousness to cover the people's shame and guilt. And how does he do that? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? By allowing the sinners to debase him with a purple robe and then crucifying him naked for his shame and in that way 
Christ wins for us our robes of righteousness. You see the irony there? And in the book of Revelation, it actually describes the saints of God in heaven as wearing robes. And what color do you think they are? They're not purple, because purple is the, co- the color of worldly, a secular value, but instead we see in the book of Revelation that it's a white robe that Christ gives to his saints as he has purified us from all of our unrighteousness. And so even in this purple robe, we have here this very interesting idea of the righteousness of Christ being won for us and given to us as he dies for us on the cross, shamed and naked. Let's go on to the second detail here in the text. Look at the crown of thorns in verse 17. It says, Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. 18, they began to hail him, to salute him, hail king of the Jews, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down to him in homage. Same kind of thing happening here. This mockery. Oh, the king. They fall down and exalt him with words of deep hypocrisy. And somebody actually had an idea. Somebody said, oh, this is so funny. This purple robe, this is great. We just need to complete the ensemble. Hey, why don't we make a crown and crown him too? That would be hilarious, they say to themselves. And so somebody apparently took the time. You can almost imagine the soldiers enjoying this moment here. Somebody literally took the time to run off into the field, to gather some thorns, to begin to fabricate this thing into sort of a laurel wreath crown, and to place it on the Savior's head, again, with the height of mockery. Now, why do they put a crown on him? Well, obviously, they're mocking him as a king, but don't forget that in the ancient world, the laurel wreath in particular took on very great nuance and significance of its own. Who wore laurel wreaths in the ancient world? Let's think about this for just a moment. You have three different people, really. First of all, laurel wreaths were used to crown the Olympic champions of the ancient games of uh, Athens and Corinth, the original Olympic games. They would place laurel wreaths on their head. And then who else? Well, emperors wore laurel wreaths. We see that depicted in many of the coins that are extant from that era. Emperors would wear these laurel wreaths. And then guess what else? Sometimes the Greek gods themselves would be depicted as as wearing laurel wreaths. The god Apollo, for instance, is almost always depicted in ancient art as wearing this laurel wreath. And so again we have here this idea that they're recognizing him as king, perhaps even a god, and yet this recognition is utterly false in their own hearts. Right? They're not really worshiping him. It's pure, pure mockery. And so what do they do then? It says, the Scripture says that they actually began to take a reed and began to strike him on the head. Now you can imagine how that might feel if you're wearing a crown of thorns and somebody gets a reed stick, begins to strike you on the head with it. The thorns of the crown would begin to pierce into the skin all the way to the skull. And why are they doing this? To honor him? No, because they despise him. They're hating him here. And yet, in a similar way that we see the robe being a significant metaphor in the Scriptures, we also see crowns as a significant metaphor. Listen to this from 
Paul, writing 2 Timothy 4.8, he says, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me also, but to all who have loved his appearing. So there again, Paul says, we will wear crowns one day, believers. We will wear crowns. What kind of crowns will we wear? Well, Paul just said, it is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord will award me on that day. It's not a crown that we would ever deserve. It's not a crown because we're ever going to be champions or kings or gods. No, the crown that Christ is going to give us is of his own righteousness. And here we read also in the book of Revelation, listen to this, that in Revelation chapter 4, it says that the 24 elders are going to cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. So twice now, Christ wears the robe that we might wear the robe in heaven. And now we have Christ wearing the crown of thorns that we might wear and then cast down before him the crown of righteousness. Two very important symbols in this text. Now let's go on and and look at the third. This will be C in your outline. So we looked at the cloak. We looked at the crown of thorns. Now let's look at the place itself. It's called Golgotha. We see this in verse 22 of of our text this morning. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which Mark even describes for us, means the place of a skull. Now if you've ever listened to the great hymns of the faith, and obviously you have, we're a hymn-singing congregation, Uh, you've probably heard this very place being described of as Calvary, which word is not present in the English Standard Version that we're reading and preaching from this morning. But if you've ever wondered where the word Calvary comes from, it comes from the King James Version of, of this text. And all of these words, whether we're looking at Golgotha or Calvary, or as Mark is just translated here into the English, the place of the skull, they all literally mean the, the skull. That's what those words are translated, right? King James uses Calvary, picking up on the Latin Vulgate, Calvary, which means skull. Or in the Greek, it's cranion, which we get the word cranium from. Now, why is this place called the skull? That's a, it's a good name for a place where you crucify people. Well, later on today after church, go home and do an image search of Golgotha, And you'll see very readily why the place takes on that name because now for some 2,000 years, you can literally see in it what looks like a skull in the side of the rock. It's very apparent. You can still see it today. Just do an image search and you'll see that the rock itself actually has a skull-like shape. And so this place is a place of foreboding. It's It's a dark Place. It's a place of, of fear and death where they would commonly crucify uh, the victims, those who had been convicted of such crimes. But notice, too, that Golgotha, interestingly, is outside of the city of Jerusalem. You have to go outside the gates to this place. Why, why is that significant? Well, it's, it's significant for a number of reasons that it's this, this rock overlooking the city. Number one, because the Romans were very pleased to crucify people in the full view of the public. So the Romans had a reason for this. They wanted people to see those who were being crucified. 
Why did they want that? Well, presumably to terrify anybody else so they wouldn't commit the same crimes. And so for Rome, it's a perfect place to crucify the victims of, of uh, capital punishment because it was so public. But the Jews were also, although they weren't able to carry out capital punishment in of themselves, they were pleased to have the crucifixions take place here also because Golgotha is outside of the city limits. Well, why does that matter? Well, as the holy city of God, of course, you don't want people hanging on the cursed tree inside the city. That's utterly unfitting for the city of David itself. Right Throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, the city of David or Jerusalem is described as like unto the holy city. And the fact that dead bodies would defile the holy city made it all the more appropriate that you would have such dead bodies, especially of criminals, right? These scum of the earth refuse criminals, that they would be cast out outside of the city so as not to defile the holy city. And the author of Hebrews actually picks up on this theme that Christ was crucified outside of the city limits. Listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 13. The author says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy holies by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So, he says, Jesus also suffered outside the gates in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So there he's picking up on Old Testament language there, right? With the, with the bodies of the sacrifices being burned outside the camp. And of course, that's what they would do in the tabernacle or the temple system. Once the animals were sacrificed in or around the temple or the tabernacle, they would take the carcasses of those animals and they would burn them outside. Right? The burning, stinking carcasses of the animals already sacrificed. You don't want to keep those in the temple for very long. So you bring them outside the gate and you burn them up. And the author of Hebrews says, in the same way, so our Christ, our great sacrifice, was crucified outside of the city. Therefore, let us go to Him and bear His reproach with Him as He dies for us. The third, or the fourth, excuse me, this is D. Detail that we want to look at comes from verse 23. It says, They offered to him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. That's Mark 15, 23. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, why wouldn't Jesus take this wine offered to him? Who offered it to him, first of all? Mark doesn't say. Luke's Gospel 23:36 says it was the soldiers themselves who offered this wine. Why would they do that? Well, perhaps maybe there's a couple of soldiers feeling sorry for Jesus. I don't know. Maybe this is offered up as an act of mercy to help quench his thirst as he suffers. Maybe not. Maybe they're still continuing on this, this very dastardly and heinous form of mockery. But either way, Jesus doesn't take it. Why doesn't Jesus take it? Well, it's not because Jesus doesn't drink wine. Clearly, he does in other texts. He not only drinks wine, but he even turns water into wine. So that's, that's not the issue. But you see, the, the wine here is mixed with myrrh. It says 
in the original so that the wine would take on an even more potent form. It would sort of work almost like a medicinal effect of dulling the pain. It'd be like taking a handful of ibuprofen or it'd be like drinking a bunch of a straight, I don't know, straight alcohol. And Jesus refuses this because he doesn't want to dull the pain. Isn't that interesting? If he takes this wine that's been mixed with myrrh, it's going to have a potent effect on his body, and Jesus doesn't want that. He doesn't want to dull the pain. He doesn't want to take the edge off. You and I probably would. Probably do anything to remit even a little bit of the pain, right? But Jesus can't, and he won't. Because in this moment, you see, Jesus is experiencing for us the wrath of God. Jesus has to experience the full wrath of God against sin. In fact, we've already seen two other times in the Gospel of Mark where it's described the wrath of God being poured out as like the cup of God's wrath. And and Mark drew that from the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah, right? And so in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the cup of God's wrath is the is like the Messiah absorbing into himself the wrath that we deserve. And in this moment, Jesus can't shortcut that. He can't cut off the corner. He can't skip a little bit. He can't jump ahead. He can't fast forward in time. He can't get dull in his senses. Jesus has to experience the fullness of the wrath of God because he's doing this vicariously for us. And now here's the last little detail we're going to look at this morning. And it's the inscription itself in verse 26. It says, The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Now in the other Gospels, it's pretty clear that the the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees are not pleased with this sign. Pilate affixed a sign over top of the cross, which uh, would sometimes read the charge that the criminal was being convicted of. Uh, whether it was thievery or murder or insurrection, whatever it is. And so the, the sign affixed above Jesus, the little placard says, the king of the Jews. Now the chief priests are not happy about this. Why aren't they happy about this? Because as it says in another gospel, they said, don't write the king of the Jews, write, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. They want separation from him. They don't want to identify with Jesus. They don't want to be publicly associated with Jesus. They don't want him, even in his death charge, to bring any dishonor to their own name. And so they don't want king of the Jews. They want he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate simply replies, what I've written, I've written. Now David pointed this out last week. and This, this, is, really, this is really significant, I think. David pointed out, if you look back in Mark chapter 15, verse 1, If you go back a couple of paragraphs to where we were previously, David pointed this out. I thought this was helpful. He said, well, let's read the verse. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. So there's this little meeting that takes place after the official Sanhedrin verdict has already come down. And it's probably here that they shuffle the charges just a bit against Jesus. Just going to tweak the language a little bit. Just, just a bit of an edit on the official charge against Christ. Because as you remember, before the Sanhedrin, what was the official charge? It was blasphemy, right? That's what the, the Sanhedrin, the scribes were trying Jesus of. 
was blasphemy, and that's what the Sanhedrin convicted him of. But watch this sleight of hand, legal maneuver, ever so deftly, that when they bring the charge before the Romans, who don't care about the Jews' blasphemy laws, just a little tweak to get a charge that could be brought against Jesus and result in the death penalty, so they modify it to sedition. Not so much blasphemy, more sedition it is. Really, that's what we meant. And why is that significant? Because the Romans wouldn't care about a blasphemy charge, but they'd be very zealous to prosecute a sedition charge. Rome, this great empire, got to work pretty hard to keep people under the thumbscrews in an empire that vast. And so sedition for the Romans was one of the most serious crimes which is why Jesus' trial essentially does result in his crucifixion, even though Pilate obviously has kind of a mashed-up conscience throughout the whole matter. Now, I want to just point this out as we begin to wrap up here. Very interesting that the charges against Jesus are blasphemy and sedition. Blasphemy from the Jews, sedition for the Romans. Interesting because... If you and I were before the very tribunal of God, those would be the charges against us. Right? If we, if we were held liable for all of our sins, a blasphemy charge would probably stand pretty well against us. You and I, everybody ever born, since Adam, accepting only Christ, we have violated the first commandment of God, which is that we would have no other gods before him. And not only that, but a sedition charge would work pretty good against us as well because you and I, in our failure to obey God, the king of the universe, the king of the heavens, we've set up our own little kingdom, haven't we? And each one of us, we've made ourselves our own little emperor, our own little king, our own little kingdom, and if we were to be brought before the tribunal of God even right now, blasphemy and sedition would hold up legally pretty well against us. And so it's a beautiful twist of fate in history, we might say, that those are the charges that Jesus endures, not because he is a criminal, but because we are. You see? And so all these five details that we've looked at this morning... One of the inescapable conclusions is that Jesus is getting exactly what we deserved. All this wrath of God, all of this being brought low, all of this being despised, all of this is exactly what we would have deserved had we stood for our own sins at our own trial before the great and living God. But I'll tell you something else. This also shows the great mercy of Christ, doesn't it? Because in each and every one of these details, Christ is willing to stand in our place for us. He's willing to endure what we should have endured. He's willing to experience what we should have experienced. Doesn't that make you grateful for Christ? Doesn't that make you thankful that he stood in your place, that he hung on 
the cursed tree for you, that he was mocked and despised for you, that his skull was pierced by the crown of thorns for you, that it was his head that was beaten instead of yours. Aren't you glad for what Christ has done? And if you think of all this, we think of the weight of our sin and the mercies of our Christ, and how can we do anything other than give him the thanks and the praise for having died for us? Let's stand together and receive the benediction as we go. Christian, as you you go this morning, know that you have been died for. Know that your sins have been paid in full for you by Christ on the cross. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you his peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.